As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be made manifest in him. The man was born blind. It was something that accordingly everyone knew. You note that he's a blind beggar, which means that because of having been blind all his life, he couldn't find gainful employment. A day when it was much harder than it might be today to function in that capacity. So he begged for his bread. But it meant that he was highly visible. Everybody knew that he was there. The disciples, when they ask their question, they don't say, oh, we believe this man was born blind. They all know that he was. And so when he is healed, he will be one of those obvious examples of healing. You think about in Acts 4, when Saints Peter and John are on their way up to the temple and there's a lame man who's by the temple gate. And they, in the name of Jesus, heal him. There are disputes that come out the other end about what they did and what they're doing and about their use of the name of Jesus. But the authorities cannot deny the healing because everybody knows this man. He's the beggar who's always at the gates. Likewise, in this context. But as they come on him, the question is stirred. It's an ancient one. Why is this man in this state? Why is he suffering in this way? Whose fault is it? Was it his sin or was it his parents? And I always smile a little bit out of that. Uh, It was his sin? What did he do? How could he do it? He was born blind. Is this a retroactive sort of thing in your understanding? But who's responsible? If someone is suffering, there must be something that was done. I mean, it's always... I think about it as as an ancient question, but it comes right into our day. When something goes wrong, how many of us say, well, what did I do to deserve this? And sometimes before God, as we're struggling, or we're praying for someone we care about, we're saying, Lord, why is this happening? What did he or she do to deserve what's happening? And that really basic equation that if you're If you do what's wrong, you'll suffer. If you do what's right, you'll prosper. So if you're suffering, you must have done something. If you're prospering, then presumably you must be doing something right. Well, you don't have to read far in Scripture before you know that there's always been contradiction to that. It's very clearly there. Well, we see the righteous suffering. We see the wicked prospering. How does this work, Lord? The book of Job picks that one up very much. Psalm 73 is another place with the wrestling with it. Interestingly, though, Jesus doesn't enter into that one. It's not anybody's fault. That's not what you need to focus on here. The man in his current state, in this moment, in this place, the reason for that is that the works of God are to be made manifest in him. There's an opportunity here for God to do what the Lord wants to do as this life is made available to him. And as I was reflecting on that, my mind went back to the story of Gideon. I've talked about on different occasions back in 
Judges chapter 6. It's a time when Israel is, well, it's a few generations into the land. Do you remember they came to the promised land and they were charged by God to be his judgment upon the land and the gods of the land, the peoples of the land and their gods. They were to drive them out. They were to do a cleansing of the land, but they failed to be faithful. And they were warned that those they didn't deal with would be thorns in their flesh, would be real snares to them in the land. Well, we're ways down the line and the people are living in real terror. The Midianites and the Amalekites are just watching over them. They get crops in the field and the enemies come in and destroy them. They're, they're really hardly able to function. A prophet shows up and does the why question. He actually kind of sketches out for them all that's happened since the time they left Egypt, why they're in the state that they're in. But then we shift to the scene of Gideon and the angel of the Lord comes to him and addresses him as a mighty man of valor and says, the Lord is with you. And Gideon's response is, if the Lord is with us, then why are we in the state we're in? Why are we in this disaster? And it's another one of those times where the Lord doesn't go back through again. They know what their state is. They could argue about whether or not they deserve what's coming on, but that's not what he's there for. He's there to charge Gideon with God's deliverance of his people. And Gideon's question can't be, well, why has all this happened? But what, given the circumstances that you find yourself in now, what does the Lord want to do in and through you? How does he want to manifest his works? And so Gideon is charged then with what he's to do in that deliverance. And I'm not going to go back through his story, but it's, it's always worth rereading the story of Gideon and all the details that are there. But I think as well of, of Esther, another good biblical story that comes then not to the time in the land, but later in, in Babylon and times of exile and times of oppression, where you have Esther who finds herself in the royal court of a foreign king. But she's now married into that. Her people are under severe threat and she has her uncle Mordecai saying to her, you may be scared by what you have to do, but it may be for just such a time as this that you are in this place. And again, the question, not about all the things that led to being there, but what does it mean to be here in this moment, to be uniquely charged with being the one through whom and in whom God works? Often we can't see how we are so suited, how God might work through us. Sometimes we're really confounded. Gideon was certainly overwhelmed, but God's grace came to bear. We have that first lesson today where Samuel is sent to choose the king who will succeed Saul. Well, we'll succeed him in one sense, we'll replace him in another very real sense. We'll oust him from the throne because he is God's choice, the man after his own heart. But Samuel, for all of his wisdom, for all his experience, can't see what God alone can show him. Samuel, don't get so caught up with the man that you think 
should be on the throne. Actually, that's part of that whole story. I always think Saul was the king that the people imagined they were looking for. He just filled the bill, and when Samuel saw the first of the sons, he thought, well, here's another good kingly figure, and he has to be told, don't look on the outward appearance. Don't look at him. That's what men do. The Lord looks at the heart. I've rejected him. He's not the one. And that, too, is a fascinating story because sometimes when we're seeking God's will, we're, we're choosing between options. Well, maybe, maybe it's not one, but it's the other. And we're, we're at least guessing. Maybe we can cast lots and hope that God will speak through it. But those times where he clearly says, he's not here. I've been sent to choose one of the sons, but he's not here. And Samuel knows that. But the Lord opens the eyes, opens the way. David, again, is the one who is uniquely suited for what's to come up. He's the one in whom God is going to do the works of God. So back to our man, our blind man who is there on this day. Jesus isn't going to enter into the philosophical question because he wants to do the work through this man He's come to heal him. It's going to be something of a living parable because Jesus has just said to them that he's coming to be the light in the world. He wants them to be about the works of light while it is still light because darkness is coming when the works can't be done. But he heals the man. And it's, it's one of those moments in the healings of Jesus that is wonderfully tangible and earthy kind of healing he spits and makes the mud, uh, makes the clay to put on the man's eyes. Now, there, there are healing properties in saliva. Uh, you might notice that wounds heal up better in your mouth often than outside, but I, wouldn't, I would be a little concerned about a doctor that you went to who, who spit and then rubbed his hands on you or something. But it was known technique. Jesus puts the mud on, the man goes and washes and comes back seeing. St. John in his Gospel regularly opens up the things that Jesus is doing and points to, to other depths that are there. And I can't hear that story without thinking about the creation and thinking about God forming the first human being out of the dust, out of the earth. And here he's forming something of the clay. And God breathes in his breath and the man becomes a living soul. Well, if you remember last week's gospel, when Jesus was talking about his gift, it was the gift of living waters. It's the gift of his Holy Spirit. So you begin to think about the water and the clay coming together and the washing of the waters. Not hard to think about the gift of the formation in God, a new formation in Him, the outpouring of His Spirit. And so in this man, what's beginning to work is not just the healing of his eyes, but is the awakening of a whole new creation, which is bound up with his relationship then with Jesus. Because when it starts, his eyes are open, but he really doesn't know who did it. Well, it was the man named Jesus, but he doesn't have much of a sense of who that is. I imagine he was pretty overwhelmed at that point. I mean, imagine, well, 
If your eyes had been cloudy for a while and then you could see clearly, it's a real lift. Maybe you get new glasses and suddenly you can see things and you had no idea that they were there. But to have your eyes open for the first time, just the sensory overload in all of that. But then, in the wonderful way that God works, it's actually the Pharisees starting to persecute him that stirs in him a deeper understanding that opens him to the Lord. Well, who did this? How did it happen? Well, it was the man named Jesus. Well, how did he do it? What is he? Who is he? And the man hasn't thought about it much before. Well, he he must be a prophet. I mean, how could he do these things unless this was the touch of God, unless this were one of his own special servants? Well, um, how did he do it? How did he heal your eyes? Well, I told you already. What is it that you're looking for? You want to become his disciples too. And they rebuke him sharply. We're disciples of Moses. We know where Moses came from. We know his teaching. But this man, we don't know where he comes from. Which all by itself is interesting because on other occasions, that's the mark against him. Well, we know who he is. Um, Isn't he the son of Joseph and of Mary? We know his brothers and sisters. But here they say we really don't know where he comes from. That is, we don't know his authority. Wow, isn't that interesting? Never since the beginning of the world has anyone heard of a man who was born blind having his eyes opened, but this man opened my eyes. You say he's a sinner, but if he's a sinner, how can God do these works through him? And so the man now is thinking there's a lot more going on. And even though they send him away, have you noticed that sometimes in the world in which we live, that if the right people start objecting to something that is being said, you have a pretty good idea that there's something true going on there. Because they try to shut it down very quickly. Get out of here. We have no place for a guy like you. And as he goes out, he encounters Jesus. And the Lord says, do you believe in the Son of Man? That title that the Lord uses of himself, it's rather than simply accepting the title of Messiah that is so easily misunderstood. He points to something a little bit more mysterious, but that has intriguing Old Testament background. Do you believe one, and just like the woman at the well, the one who's speaking to you is he. Lord, I believe. Here's the blind man, a healing that is irrefutable because everybody knows. Here's the blind beggar who's been all here all these years. We've watched him grow up. His eyes are open. Initially, that, that affirmation, it's something... All of us should have our faith. You know, we should have those anchors going down. Those moments when we know that the Lord is real. When we know that his hand is at work in our lives, we should put anchors down there. We should mark those places. Write them down. Make sure that we remember them. Because in the times when we doubt, in the times when we're being shaken about a little bit, that we come back. We say, but I knew. I knew that he was real. And I know that he's real now. Once I was blind, but now I see. Sounds like a good line for him. But 
the physical eyes opened and then the mind and the heart and the spirit and then the encounter with Jesus and that giving of Himself to Him in faith. The light had already begun to shine not just in Him but through Him to His neighbors as well as His life bore witness. What's He doing there at that time and in that state? I don't think Jesus was trying to give a simplistic explanation to say, you know, He suffered all these years just so that one day God could do a miracle through Him. But I do believe that He was saying very clearly that right here and now, everything this man has been has gone through, enables him to speak the gospel in a very particular way to the people around him, to be a witness that no other can be. And that's important because all of us in our own lives come to that place. We do need to be aware of some of the why in our lives. Yeah, sometimes we do stupid things that have immediate consequences. Sometimes the things that we suffer in our day do have deeper roots and there are things that need to be healed, old sins that need to be dug out, that need to be rooted out. But we do that examination, we bring that to the Lord and we don't stay in that darkness. We don't wallow in that past. We don't use those things as the excuses for why our lives are a mess. We bring ourselves to the Lord knowing that He can work through us where we are, exactly as we are, all of those things redeemed by Him, the works of God made manifest in and through our lives. St. Paul, in those wonderful words in Ephesians, is dealing with those who've come out of, well, pagan background, who've come out of a darkness that he says was so deep in their lives that it wasn't just what surrounded them, but it was what filled them. You know, you once were darkness. That was the way you thought. That was the way you saw yourself. That was the way that you behaved. That was the way you spoke. Those were the things you spoke about. But as you've been delivered in Christ, you come into His light. Your life belongs to Him. And all of those things are no longer to drag you back into that hole, but are to be given over to Him that He might work through you and bear witness in ways you don't even imagine could be possible. The Lord doesn't look and see as man sees, but He looks on the heart. He knows who we are inside and out. As we give ourselves to Him, He redeems even the things that we thought were the most wayward. He works in and through our lives who we are uniquely because of who we are and who we are now in Him. We don't always see how clearly He will act through our circumstances and sometimes like the man born blind, it may be a long and circuitous journey. It may take a lot of years. But as we give ourselves over, He does take us where we are and works in and through us. Even then, He's at work bringing about His purposes, making manifest in and through us the works of God. Once you were darkness, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light and try to learn what is pleasing to God.
His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, or this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God may be manifest in him.